Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, as a church, we are preparing ourselves for Easter with uh, this series that we have called Liberated. And over the course of this series, we are tracing these themes through Scripture where we see God redeeming His people, God delivering His people into life with Him. And we started this series two weeks ago by looking at the story of the Exodus, this moment where God frees His people out of slavery in Egypt. And then last week, we looked at the rest of the book of Exodus to see that God not only calls his people out of slavery, God not only sets his people free, but he calls them to step into life with him, to fulfill the purposes that he has for them and for the world. God calls his people his own so that they might reflect his glory and assures them that that they will be capable of fulfilling the task that he has for them. God gives his people this calling while they're in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. But God's intent for them is not to remain there at that mountain forever. God is slowly and steadily over 40 years leading his people into the land that he had promised to give to their ancestor Abraham. And the process to get to that point is a bumpy one and we're not going to walk through all of it. But that is the, the direction where this story is eventually headed. God is leading his people out of slavery in Egypt and into this land he had promised to give them so that they might be his people and reflect his glory to a watching world. And God accomplishes all this throughout this story by partnering with human leaders. It starts at creation. God calls Adam and Eve partner with him in this work of caring for the Garden of Eden. He, he calls Moses, we've seen in the story of the Exodus, to be the one to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. After Moses is gone, God raises up Joshua to be the one to succeed him. After Joshua, we get the, the period of the judges where God will consistently raise up leaders to deliver his people out of the messes that they create for themselves. All of this happens as God is leading his people into the promised land, and then once they get there, establishing them as a nation. But through all of this, it is clear that God is not setting up a leadership structure like one we would typically come up with. He doesn't call Moses and say, Moses, you and your descendants are going to reign over my people for all time. He invites individuals so that he can partner with them to lead his people into his purposes for them. And yet even as all of this is happening, over the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, over years and years in in the land becoming established, there is an eye towards something more permanent, where God would raise up a king to be a part of leading his people into life with him. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to jump ahead in the story of Scripture to look at and think about this idea of kingship. So what do I want to do today is look at two promises that God gives in the Old Testament about kingship and then look at how those promises are and are not fulfilled by the first three kings that God raises up to lead his people. So that's, that's the outline for the morning. Two promises and three kings as God continues to accomplish his purposes to deliver his people into life with him. 
And the first promise we're going to look at comes in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17. If you have a Bible and want to open up there, the words will be up on the screen here in a few moments. And the book of Deuteronomy, you might know, is Moses' farewell address, farewell address to his people. Uh, he's at the end of his life, and he's preparing God's people for what things are going to be like once he is gone. And so he gives a series of addresses reminding them of the law and what God has called them to do. And in the midst of one particular section of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is walking through how all these various authority figures are supposed to function within God's people. He talks about priests and judges and things like that. And in the middle of it all, he talks about how a king is supposed to lead when the day comes for one to be put in place. And so we get that Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 14. Moses says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom... He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The big thing we should notice, I think, in those verses is that God is not opposed to a king. God is opposed to a king that rules in the way that kings tend to rule. My guess is when you think of a king, you have images in your head of someone sitting on a throne in a castle surrounded by servants attending to their every need. And within that image is a hierarchy of power. One where the one who's sitting on the throne is in charge and everyone else within the one on the throne's orbit exists to do the bidding of the one who is sitting on the throne. But God seems to have a different understanding of what a king should be. First off, God says it will be the king that I choose. The, the, king does, the kingship does not go to the one who has the most muscle behind them, the biggest, the strongest, or something like that, whoever wins the fight. It is who God chooses. And that king shouldn't rule the way kings tend to rule. I mean, nations today aren't that different from how nations were in ancient Israel. One of the first ways a nation might strive then or now to have a sense of security for themselves would be to build up military might. If you have neighbors around you, surrounding nations that you're worried are going to uh, uh, invade you, one of the best ways you can make sure that doesn't happen is to build up a strong military so that no one will want to mess with you. But God has different plans. He says his people are not to accumulate horses, to be used in battle. He says his people especially are not to go back to Egypt to get those horses. After all God has done to free his people out of slavery in Egypt, it would make no sense for them to go back there or to aspire to be like Egypt if Egypt has been judged by God. Instead, God calls his people to trust in him alone. 
At the end of the day, this is not an issue of military strategy. It is one of trust. I mean, if you don't feel safe in a situation, those fight-or-flight instincts will kick in, and you will want to try to protect yourself in some way, whether that's engaging or running away. And the same is true on a national scale. I mean, if the king of a fledgling nation like Israel thinks their only hope of survival is building up military might, they will build up an army and give themselves and their people a sense of security, and as they do that, they will become just like Egypt. But if God's people can understand that the God who freed them from Egypt without them lifting a finger is still with them and still cares for them, then they won't waste their time trying to build up a military. They will allow God to fight their battles, as he said he would do. And from the leadership of a king like that on down, this nation proclaimed to the world the goodness of the God who has promised to always provide for them. And when you trust in God in this way, it affects how you go about everything else. I mean, a king in the ancient world would accumulate Wives. They would marry princesses from other nations in order to develop, milita- or develop alliances with those other nations. And God says that this should not be done by his king. A, a king over God's people should not aspire to be a good politician, considering consolidating power through international treaties. He should trust in the one true God the one who saved his people out of Egypt to be his security at all times. And when a king does something like that, they will not accumulate wealth. Obviously, there's a lot in Scripture about the dangers of wealth, and I think that's in mind here, but I think there's more to it than that. Yes, there is a danger in accumulating wealth. The human heart tends to trust in wealth instead of God alone when given the opportunity. But also here, I think a king is told not to acquire great wealth because of the way a king would acquire wealth would be by taking it from those that they're ruling over. God has no interest in a king taxing and oppressing his people in order to finance their own desires, in order to build a lavish palace or anything like that. They're to trust in the provision of God, just like everyone else. And instead of that portrait of kingship, which is how things tend to function in the ancient world, God tells the people that their king should be devoted to the law. One Old Testament scholar says that God wants his kings to be Bible nerds, which gives me a little bit of hope. But it is a vastly different understanding of what it means to lead a nation from what we would normally expect. I mean, when a king takes the throne, it says there in those verses, the first thing that king is to do is to go to the priests to get a scroll that is a copy of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they are to take it home, and they are to sit down, and they are to write out word for word by hand their own personal copy of that law. Pasting isn't an option. I mean, imagine if you went home today, sat down and opened up your Bible to Genesis 1-1 and started writing on a piece of notebook paper by hand every word you found there. You're going to be there for a little while. And yet that's what God says the, uh, any king that rules over his people should do first and foremost. So that then they have their own copy of God's law with them every day for the rest of their life so that they can study it, so that they can be formed by it, so that they can be the king God desires. And when that is done, God says his people will flourish under the leadership of that king 
and his descendants. Now we can take a step back from that and ask ourselves, how in the world is this supposed to work? And we can be honest and say that in the real world, the portrait God describes here doesn't seem practical. I mean, there are international affairs to attend to, and God says, don't worry about it, just spend a lot of time reading the Bible. We might not state it in those exact terms, because we're nice church people, and you showed up on Savings Day, so you're really good church people. But my guess is that thought at least enters our mind. Because if nothing else, it's how we often live. I've said, I'm sure at least some of you have too, like, yeah, I'd love to read the Bible more. I know I should. I just I don't have time. I get to the end of the day and I think, where did the day go? I didn't even have time to sit down and open up the Bible. And if, if that's you, I don't say that to shame you because, I, like I said, I can be guilty of the same thing. But I say that to show that whether we say it directly or not, we can show by our actions pretty easily that sitting down and being formed by God's word just doesn't seem all that practical. And maybe that's the entire point. Maybe our way of doing practical, maybe our world's way of doing practical just doesn't work. Maybe the God who created us, the God who created our world, knows better and has something more in store for us. Maybe God's inviting us into life with him so that we can flourish as he intended. Maybe that's the promise for us when we step into life with God. Well, that's God's first promise of kingship, and things continue on from there. God raises up leaders to fulfill his purposes, and one of those leaders that he raises up is Samuel. And as Samuel gets to the end of his life, he has a plan in place, he thinks, to put his two sons in charge of affairs, just as he has been, but the rest of the people of Israel aren't crazy about that idea, and so they come to him instead with a proposal to anoint a king. And we're told about that in 1 Samuel 8, starting at verse 5. They, the the people of Israel, said to him, said to Samuel, you are old, which is a great part of conversation, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, remember the Exodus, until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Remember, God isn't against a king. He is against a typical king, which is what Israel wants in this passage. And yet, surprisingly, God gives it to them. I mean, this story, if we think about it, it's like a teenager asking for a brand new car on their 16th birthday, and when the parents don't give it to them, they say, you've never done anything for me. I mean... Just hearing that, you know that's probably not true. If someone's raised someone else for 16 years, they've probably done something for them at some point. And so to say you've never done anything for me is short-sighted, doesn't understand the whole picture. The parents understand far more than the kid does in that scenario, we can probably assume. And that's the same thing that's happening here. And yet when Israel makes the request, God grants it. And yet God makes it clear to them that it won't turn out well for them. Just as every other time they've tried to go off on their own hasn't worked out well for them. Uh, From the moment 
God brought his people through the Red Sea, out of slavery in Egypt. They've been rebellious. They thought they know better than God. They've tried to go their own way, and God has come to them every time and saved them, continued to patiently work with them to deliver them into life with him. And this will be another step in that journey. So God sends Samuel back to the people with a message of warning. He tells them, sure, you can have a king, you can have what you're asking for, but it's not going to go well. Uh, The king is going to take your children and make them serve in the palace or in the military. The king is going to take your money from you and enrich themselves. But the people don't want to hear it. They want a king. They'd rather have a man sitting on a throne instead of the presence of God. And so the next chapter tells us about this first king. 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 2 say, There was a Benjamite, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as can be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. If you were creating an ideal candidate for king, this would probably be what we would come up with. I mean, Saul, it says there in those verses, Saul comes from a good family. We can trace his family line back all the way to his patriarch. He's a good-looking young lad. He's, he's a head taller than everyone else. I mean, high school football isn't around in ancient Israel, but I can guarantee you that if it was, Saul would have been the quarterback of his football team. He would seem to be everything you would want in a good, strong leader. And Saul looks the part, but we soon discover that he can't play it. In chapter 10, Saul is officially crowned to be king. And yet it's this weird scene because at the moment where Saul is supposed to actually be crowned king over Israel, they can't find him. The text says he's hiding in the supplies. It's like Saul's supposed to walk on stage to get his crown and take the throne and instead he's hiding in the coat closet, which is weird. And it's an omen for what's to come. Saul has his good moments. I don't want to... I don't want to be too much of a downer on him, but it becomes pretty clear that he might look the part, but he can't play the part. Saul becomes king in 1 Samuel chapter 10. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel has said to Saul, yeah, it's over for you. You've not done what God told you to do. This view of kingship, like the other nations, has been found wanting. And so a new king is needed. And we're introduced to this new king in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, Samuel shows up to the home of this man named Jesse and says, Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the next king over Israel. So get them all together. We're going to figure out which one God has picked to be the next king. And seven of Jesse's sons show up. And at first, uh, Samuel is impressed by them. They're strong. They're good-looking guys. They seem to have things going for them. They seem a lot like Saul. And yet God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So they go through these first seven sons of Jesse. None of them are the right one to be king over Israel. Jesse remembers he has an eighth son who he didn't even think was worth inviting to the ceremony. And that one comes in and his name is David. And when David shows up, he's anointed to be king over Israel to take the place of Saul. And yet David's ride is a bumpy one. He has his high points. He kills the giant Goliath with just his sling and five smooth stones. He's celebrated by the people, but this makes him a threat to Saul, and so he has to flee. 
And David will spend years in the wilderness fleeing for his life. And we're skipping over a bunch of the story because, for full disclosure, I assume you don't want to be here all day, but also because over the summer we're going to be spending a few weeks in a sermon series through the life of David. That's a teaser to come back in the summer. But eventually, David takes the throne. Everything seems to be settled. David conquers Jerusalem, makes it his capital. He brings the Ark of the Covenant of God's presence that we looked at last week into the city. And with all of that seeming great, David decides he is going to build a temple, a permanent dwelling for the Ark of the Covenant, for God's presence. But God, God has other ideas. Instead of David doing something great for God, God tells David he is going to do something great for him, which leads us to our second promise this morning. The prophet Nathan comes to David with this message in 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 5. He says, he says to, God says to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, not since the Exodus to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from being a shepherd boy, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Sorry about that. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings, inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It would seem at this point in the story, if we're reading all of it, that David is the king we've been looking for. He is the king from Deuteronomy 17, and yet God says there is more to it. That one day, one of David's descendants will come and will be a son of God, and he will sit on the throne forever. And it would be nice to to say that at this point in the story, the very next scene is all of that happening, but, but that's not the case. David's an imperfect person, like each and every one of us. He commits adultery. He then commits murder to cover up that adultery. One of his sons rises up to try to take the throne from him. There's dysfunction, there's disorder in David's family and David's kingdom. More and more, the older that he gets, David starts well, but he sure doesn't finish well. And yet these promises from God remain. After David, his son Solomon takes the throne and 
And Solomon doesn't go through the ordeals his father did, but as he comes to reign, things are still uncertain. And early on in 1 Kings chapter 3, God asks Solomon in a dream for whatever he wants, and Solomon's response is that he asks for wisdom. God tells Solomon that because he hasn't asked for wealth or success, he's asked for wisdom instead. He says, Solomon, that is the right answer. And because you've given the right answer, I'm going to bless you with all the other things that you could have asked for and you didn't. And if we're thinking of that promise of 2 Samuel 7 in our heads, we might be thinking at this point that Solomon must be the one. He must be the son of David that's going to build the temple and reign forever and be everything God ever wanted a king to be. And Solomon does build the temple He's blessed by God in seemingly every way. Everything seems to be going great. There's this little comment that I think is interesting in 1 Kings 4.20. It says that the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And that might remind us of way back in the book of Genesis when God promised Abraham, one day, Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's happened under the reign of Solomon. It would seem like everything is coming together it would seem like this is the happy ending we've been looking for and there is plenty of good in the life of Solomon as we read but if we put on a different lens we also notice there's plenty of bad as well in first kings chapter 3 right before Solomon asked God for wisdom we're told in first kings 3 1 Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt and married his daughter And if we have Deuteronomy 17 in mind, we hear that little comment, alarm bells should start going off. God made it clear that his kings were not to go back to Egypt. At the end of 1 Kings 10, we get this long list of Solomon's wealth, especially the silver and gold that he has accumulated. And on one level, we read that and we think, that is amazing. God has blessed his people. Look at all these great things that are happening. Look how richly God has blessed the king of Israel. But then also we might remember Deuteronomy 17 that told us the king shouldn't acquire large amounts of silver and gold. We're told about all the horses and chariots Solomon has also within that long list. And again, on one level, we might think, wow, God has blessed Solomon. He's made Israel into this power in this region, in the world. But then then we might also remember Deuteronomy 17 that says the king shouldn't acquire horses and chariots, but should trust in God instead. 1 Kings 11 tells us about the foreign wives that Solomon married, at which point, if we're keeping Deuteronomy 17 in our mind, we might realize Solomon has violated every single command God gave there. On one level, when we look at it all, Solomon would appear to be the most successful king Israel has ever had, the most successful king we could ever imagine. But he has achieved that at the expense of breaking every single command God has given about what a king should be. So it maybe shouldn't surprise us that as we get to the end of Solomon's life, it is a tragic ending where we are told that he worships other gods and rebellions are happening in the kingdom. We might have thought Solomon was going to be the promised son of David, and yet he is not. We keep reading, things don't get better. You keep reading in the Old Testament, some good kings, a couple, but on the whole, you get a king, they show up, they worship other gods, they're taken out, the cycle starts over. 
God's people never fully step into this life he desires for them. The result of that after centuries of rebellion is exile where foreign nations come in, conquer God's people, and send them to live in other places. We might begin to think that that promise of 2 Samuel 7 of a king in David's line to reign forever just seems like a cruel joke because he's never shown up. And then we turn over to the New Testament. And it doesn't exactly begin on the most exciting of notes. It begins by telling us a genealogy, a family tree. But we're told that it is a genealogy of one named Jesus, who was the Messiah, or the Anointed One. That he was descended from David. We keep reading past that genealogy. We discover that as Jesus travels around and preaches, he proclaims to be bringing a kingdom And yet it's a kingdom that seems odd. It seems different from how kingdoms tend to function. It's a kingdom where people are told to love their enemies. It's a kingdom where it's said that the meek will one day inherit the earth. It's a kingdom that seems upside down. Instead of building military might, Jesus will say his kingdom is not of this world and therefore he doesn't need to fight any nation. Instead of building political alliances, Jesus will say when he is asked if people should pay taxes that you should give to the king, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Instead of accumulating wealth or territory, Jesus will have no home. He will spend his entire life dependent upon the hospitality of others. Instead of setting up a government, a hierarchy where he is sitting at the very top, he will say that he has come to serve, and anyone that wants to be great within his kingdom should adopt the same posture. On the last night of his life, when there are people in the room with him actively scheming to put him to death, he stops, and he goes around the room, and he washes their feet a job normally reserved for the lowest servant in the household. And he does that, and he sits back down at the table, and he says, this is how you're supposed to love one another. A short time later, a mob shows up to arrest him, and instead of starting a fight, he goes to his death. And his The kingship of Jesus looks far different from any other king our world has ever seen. And that might mean that he is the king we've been looking for all along. We don't need another king who will use us to build up their kingdom. We need a king who has come to serve. We need a king who will lead us home. Jesus is the one who has come to do that. I don't know what kingdoms you're participating in or trying to build. I don't know what life you're trying to find in this world. I don't know if it's trying to build up your own kingdom. I don't know if it's trying to build up the kingdom of work. By thinking if you can get a promotion, you can get a little higher up the ladder, you'll be good. I don't know if you're just thinking, if I can just get to retirement, I can set up my kingdom exactly how I want it. I don't know if you're thinking that once we get a vacation home, that'll be our kingdom, and then we'll be happy. I don't know if you're thinking that once 
once my kids get here or there, then everything will be just right and there will be peace in my kingdom. I don't know if you are just hoping the next election goes your way and then the kingdom will be how you want it to be. I don't know what it is, but I know those are all different ways of buying in to the world's version of kingship. And I know they never deliver on their promises. And yet Jesus, Jesus rejects the way of the world because he has something far better for us. He invites us to find life with him. So hear me when I say in love this morning, stop trying to find life elsewhere. Step into life with him. If you need help on what that looks like, we have so many people and resources here at this church that want to come alongside you and help you do that because this is the life we were created for. We were created for life lived within this kingdom with our true king and he has come to lead us home, so don't miss out. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. You did not abandon us as we deserve, but you sent your son our true king, to come and conquer those enemies of sin and death that have plagued us from the beginning, from almost the beginning, so that we might step into life with you. God, help us to walk with you wherever that leads. Help us to serve as you served us. Help us to love as you have loved us as a part of this kingdom that looks far different from any other, but is the kingdom we've been looking for all along. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.